Today's podcast is brought to you by Caffeine Gum Australia, designed for use by the US military. Caffeine chewing gum has been widely used in professional sports as the main pre-game or training caffeine source for a number of years now. Some of the benefits include 100 milligrams of caffeine per piece. It absorbs through your mouth and not through your stomach, therefore giving your body quicker access to the caffeine. And it comes in three different and unique flavors, including cinnamon, spearmint, and arctic mint. Try some today at www.caffeinegumaustralia.com. And boom, we're back. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the latest edition of the Wandering Bear Sports Podcast, the number one sports podcast in the world. Today's very special guest was the Waratahs interim co-head coach for 2021, Mr. Jason Gilmore. Jace was also a former Australian under-20s head coach and an assistant coach at the Queensland Reds. Jason has a huge amount of experience as a coach at all levels of the game, and for me, it was particularly interesting to hear about the lessons that he's learnt from the many challenges the Waratahs went through in 2020-2021. I really enjoyed picking his brain on all aspects of coaching, and it's an absolute must-listen for any young coaches out there. There's some seriously good takeaways from it. So... Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Mr. Jason Gilmore. Hey, mate, how are you? Good yourself. I'm good. I'm good. Did you did you manage to escape Sydney, or you end up getting stuck down here? No, no, I went back early, mate, and um, beat it all. So um, yeah, it was pretty lucky in the end, mate. It was good. That's mate. So you so you've got a bit of time with family because it's locked down up there as well, isn't it? Yeah, it's locked down for three days, so it goes till Friday Arvo. Um, but, mate, just like everywhere, they're just seeing what the cases are like. So, But it's good timing, mate. The girls are on school holidays. So, Oh, that'd be nice. That'd be yeah, nice. That's good, mate. Um, so what I thought we'd do, obviously there's a fair bit happening in Tar World, but I wanted to actually talk to you about coaching. Yeah. Um, when, when I was lucky enough to chat to you at the lunch, Todd actually asked me to write down a heap of questions because I, I thought I was going to get to talk to you and Nick for about two hours. Yeah. And um, and then it was only on the day that I found out it was going to be like 40 minutes. So I'd heap of coaching questions and I thought that would be a good place to, to go with you, if that's cool. Yeah, that's right, mate. So you're happy to just, happy to just rip in? Yeah, easy, mate. Um, f- first thing I thought I'd start with is um, something Todd's asked all our coaches at South at the start of the year, and it's, why do you coach? Yeah, it's um, it's a good question. Um, I think, mate, like, like any kid growing up in Australia when you're younger, you just get a, you know, a real genuine love of sport in general. Um, so growing up, like whether it was rugby league or, or cricket, you know, you're that traditional kid growing up where you do a winter sport and a summer sport and, um, I was like, you know, no different to any other young kid. I just, you know, whether it was a bat or a football or whatever, I just loved being a part of it. So my love of sport was um, grown from a young age and really encouraged by my family, which I was really lucky with. Um, and then I probably got into it. I always really enjoyed um, phys ed and that type of stuff. So I studied physical education at uni. Um, I had a younger brother um, that also played cricket and rugby. So I followed his teams around a little bit and, um, he's a little bit younger than me, so I think when I was about 17, um, his cricket coach, when he was in under-10s, just asked me to come along, and I wouldn't say it's an assistant coach or anything like that, but just to help out with the young kids, and, and mate, I really loved it. it. It really sparked a fire inside me um, that I felt I could combine my passion for sport, um, but also helping, um, you know, young kids, you know, do what they want to do. Um, and then through uni, I worked as a boarding house tutor at Churchy, Um and a part of that role is that you had to um, contribute to the co-curricular program. So they give you a rugby team to coach and um, a cricket team to coach. And um, you'd always fill your teams with all the borders and, um, you know, rip in and have a really good year. But you're coaching all levels. Um, and back then, they put you in the bottom team. So, you, you know, you coach the 14 Fs and third 15 rugby team. And then if you did well, they'd move you forward. And then it just became a real goal of mine to kind of um, see how high up whilst I was doing that boring tuning that I could actually coach a churchy. So I was really lucky to be at my old school that I went to. So I knew a lot of the teachers and a lot of the kids coming through and it was just a great four years that I had 
whilst I was studying at university. Um, and then I went into development um, at a young age. I kind of left uni and I, I had a job opportunity to go to Queensland Rugby as a development officer. And I thought I'll give that a go for three years. And if it doesn't work out, I'll go back to teaching. So I was playing at that stage and, and working as a development officer in Brisbane. And um, mate, life was good. I was, I was combining my passion with what I wanted to do. Um, you know, the pay scale of a DA back then wasn't great, but you knew that you're picking up um, other things with coach education, you're getting accelerated with your learning as you're doing it as well, which I really loved. Um, so even through playing, I'd, I'd still keep up my coaching with various teams. And um, and then, mate, I missed out on my level three when I was about 28, Warren Rebillied, who's at yeah, yeah. as well, big was. He was a coach manager at the time and, and he was great. He just said, look, mate, yeah, you're still playing at the moment, so I can't give you a level three when you're taking up the spot of another coach. Um, so I, I finished up playing at the end of that year and thought, right, well, you know, it's time to push the button on this coaching. It's something that I've always really had a passion for um, and the timing was right for me to give it a go. So that, that's kind of the basis of how I got into it. Do you, do you think a lot of coaches go into coaching after playing and, you know, Barring few exceptions at the top level, a lot seem to start at the top level rather than start at the very bottom of the grassroots and work their way up. Do you think that that sort of base from coaching kids from a really young age has actually helped mould you coaching as you've gone into professional rugby? Yeah, I, I do because um, when you coach, I wouldn't say it's the lower levels, I'd just say it's at the community level. Yeah. Um, you're not afforded all the resources and support that you've got at a professional level. So, um, you know, I remember David Adam, who's the Red CEO, we, um, we got given the East Colts one team um, together. And mate, well, I think we had two teams, um, bottom of the table the year before, um, uncontested scrums. We didn't have enough props and that's what we we're given. And um we didn't have any budget. We didn't have um, any resources to recruit good players. To. It was just on the basis of our connections and our networks and who we knew and how we could recruit and that type of thing. And I, I look back at that stuff now, being able to coach at East for a few years and, and then go to South. Um, I was lucky enough to coach with Dan McKellar there. Um, I, I wouldn't change a thing. I thought it gave me a really good basis. Um, one, on coaching with no resources. Um, and two, coaching amateur players where they're basically training from November and they finish in September. So it's a long stint. It's, it's a 10-month haul in club football, as everyone knows. Um, and to keep people motivated and together and, you know, you work through injuries and guys have got different stuff going on off the field with families and work and all that type of stuff. Um, it, it gave me a really good grounding. I'm going to go into some of the stuff you just said, but um, I'm, I'm a young coach. I've probably been coaching six months and, I had someone ask me the other day, what's what's your coaching philosophy or style? And I've gone, I, I, I don't know. So what would you say, if you have one, do, do you have a coaching philosophy or style? And is that important? Yeah, I, I think it is because um, it gives you a compass on how you want to operate. So obviously in the good times, everything's going really well and you can flow. But I find it's really important that if you you know if you're in lean times, you got to know where you're still pointed and what you believe in to keep the ship pointed in the same direction. So I'll find that coaching philosophy um, is really critical. And you know, when you need it the most, that's when you actually um, have to rely on it. Um, mate, mine's probably changed over the years. Like as a young coach, I was you know, super enthusiastic and used to write a lot of things down and that type of stuff. And my philosophy was very, you know, I, I thought it was good, but looking back on it, it was probably too big and you're trying to cover too much. So I've, I've just kept mine really simple. I, I work on two things now with my players. Is one, um, I want to help making them good men because um, at their age, they're probably you know going to start getting married and having kids and leaving sport to go into work. So you want to make sure that you equip them with the values of the sport that can set them up um, down the track. Um, and two, I want to make them as good of footballers as they possibly can so that they can um, achieve their goals, And whether that's playing super rugby, whether that's playing wallabies, um, whatever they want to do, that's where I just want to get right in behind them. So they're the two things that I always review back on at the season. If, if I've done a good job, then they're the two things that I've had an influence on. 
I was talking to Todd about some things to talk to you about. And, you know, the last year has been very interesting for the entire world. Uh, obviously, COVID is, is a challenge, but uh, particularly with your job, there were some challenges. And, and as a coach, you probably experienced a lot in the last year um, that you may or may not have seen before. But what have you learned out of the last period of time that you've had as a coach? Well, I think... COVID's given everyone just a real sense of perspective. And I think that's a positive for the young guys in particular that they've, you know, I've never been through world wars or, or anything like that, you know, like in, if you look at the histories, there's always something major that happens, you know, every couple of decades. And I think what this has given us is that real sense of um, what's important, um, what's not important and who you can rely on. Um, it's, like you said, it was certainly tough like last year, I remember it clearly. We were in Junior Wallabies and we were at our um, training camp. I think it was in March at the IS. And at that stage, COVID was something that we just kind of heard about, but it was ripping through Italy at the time and the World Cup was um, in Italy. So I presented on day one to the players just to say, look, boys, um, just get the elephant out of the room. Obviously, COVID's around. Um, at the moment, Italy's the second highest infection rate in the world, so we just got to be aware of that. But World Rugby is going to make a decision in two months' time. World Cup's still four months away, three months away. You know, we, we should be sweet. Let's just get on with it now. And by the end of the camp, that was the last Super Rugby game. So the Waratahs played the Brumbies on the Sunday, and that was our internal trial with the Junior Wallabies. Um, and I had to present to the boys on the last day to say, look, World Rugby is bringing forward till next week. They'll make a call on the World Cup, but at the moment. First grade rugby around the country has been cancelled. World sports getting cancelled when EPL and NBA, those competitions are getting cancelled. You know something's going on. Um, so it was a really awkward time. We, we didn't know where we were headed. We didn't know how long it was going to last for. Um, you know, I'm being my age, you know, and I've got kids and that type of stuff. So, um, you know, you're probably more equipped to handle it. But when you're 19, you know, your world's been rocked a lot and there's a lot of uncertainties around it. So it was really important that we got around the boys and um, just gave them some purpose and direction through that period because it was pretty tough. What's the biggest struggle coaches have, in your opinion? Um, I think there's probably a couple. Um, I think if a program's not going to be successful... Um, I think that the curse of injury is always a really tough one. Um, and you can probably cope with a couple, but if you've, you know, if you prepared a football team ready to go and you lose your key player, like you look at Penrith Panthers at the moment, they've had a great season, but they're going to lose Cleary for six weeks. Um, you know, that certainly rocks how your teams want to play to the standard to actually win competitions. Um, I think everyone pulling in the same way to create a good program. I think when you don't have clarity through your staff or your players, then that's when things can unravel pretty quickly. Um, and, and I'm a really big one. I, I love standards for a program. And um, I, I just don't think you can generate, uh, for me, good men or, or good footballers or a good program if you don't know where you're heading and what your standards are. So they're, they're little things for me that if, if I don't have them, um, I, I struggle in programs. That was something in there I'm going to ask now, but I was going to ask it later. As, as a head coach, how do you balance all the different egos, expectations, um, aspirations of everyone in the organisation? Because you're not just managing players, you're managing staff, assistants. And, and I suppose to a lesser degree, you've, you've got to deal with the board as well. Um, but how do you manage all that while keeping the eyes on the prize, which is the team succeeding at the end of the day? Yeah, yeah it's a good question. Um, probably a couple of things. Um, one is a lot of one-on-one -on -one, um, chats um, and communication because, like you said, people are going to have different aspirations and there's going to be different personalities. Um, and, you know, you can't have a cookie-cutter approach where it's the same for everyone because some people are going to be different. Like I look at the Waratahs, if... If my relationship with Azar Parisi was the same to Lachlan Swinton, to Jake Gordon, it wouldn't work because all three are, are top men, but they're all different. They've all got their own things that um, they want to achieve in life and football. Um, so I think you've got to get to know your, your people well, one-on-one, -on -one, so you can help guide them. But then when you put the puzzle together, 
um, that the sum of the individual is then the collective. So you've got to make sure that the individuals are right. They've got clarity. They know their role. They've got the skill set to do it. And they've got the energy to bring it to the table. So then when you put the pieces of the puzzle together, they actually match up. So then you're in sync with your program because um, it probably only takes one or two people um, not to be in sync and things can unravel pretty quickly. So that, that's where I find that one-on-one communication and making sure that, you know, you've got a good temperature check on what your group's doing. Just so you have a couple of those people who you, you tried to make the relationship with, but it's just, there's just something not right there. What's what's your approach to someone who's not necessarily rowing in the same direction as everyone else? Yeah, I, I think one, you can just got to be honest with them. Um, it shouldn't be a surprise once you given the final ultimatum or, or whatever. Um you've got to give them an opportunity to actually get better as well. There's no point just saying, look, I'm not happy with this, not doing this well out the back door. Well, they're there for a reason. So for me, it's it's bringing it to light, but being honest with it, giving them the opportunity and then the, the tools to actually improve over a course of time. And then ultimately it's up to their attitude and their work ethic as to whether they want to um, be a part of it. Um, you know, and there's a good saying, if you, if you can't change the man, you've got to change the man. But Hopefully it shouldn't get to that point. Um, but I'm a big believer even if you drop a player, like you should be telling them the reasons why, but then giving them an opportunity to get better because that's ultimately what you want at the end of the day is everyone, whether it's staff or a footy player, that they can actually improve. All, all this stuff will probably tie into um, one of the big questions that I have. And uh, one of the questions I, I might have asked it at the lunch was how, how do you create, a, how do you change culture and I think there was some chat about how culture was a general term, um, but I, th- I thought of a better way to word it. It's, it's how do you cultivate a winning culture? Because a, diff- a good culture and a winning culture are two different things, in, in my opinion. Yeah. What, yeah what's, I, what's your thoughts? I think number one is you can't rush it and it can't, can't be non-organic. You can't force a culture upon a group because ultimately... Um, like I said, at the, the lunch and the, the sum of the actions over a period of time to me is what your culture is. It's what you do every day and day to day. It's not sitting in a classroom on day one and going, right, what are our three buzzwords when you probably don't even know what your teammate is going to be like under pressure or in the good times or, you know, when you have a social function together, how they act and, and that type of thing. So um, I think, number one, you've got to be really clear as a head coach on what your time frame is and, and what the actions are to actually develop the culture that you're, you're looking for. But also you've got to have winners. Um, if you want a winning culture on your staff, you've got to have people that are energetic, hungry to win, willing to learn, um, willing to move the ship forward. And it's no different to your playing group. Um, and it comes down to competitiveness. Uh, it's an example I use um, that 2019 year with the 20s, um, Michael McDonald, who was a young halfback at that stage from Western Australia, he'd just been going through the system in Perth, doing really well, but hadn't made a national side or anything like that. And on, on day one in Canberra, Macca didn't know anyone else outside of Perth. He just said to the boys, if we want to be world champs, we've got to train like world champions. Like our standards have to be so high. Um, and when you get guys with that um, deep understanding of what it takes, then that's when the fire gets lit within the group and you're up and running. And, and that's what I mean. You can't force culture or, or that competitiveness onto people. It's got to be something that's inside of them. Can you create it? Like, just, just say you have a guy who's, who's, you know, a solid trainer, nothing special. He's, you know, he, he's a competitor, but he's not like that, you know, like that guy who's a winner, an out and out winner. Can, yeah. can you, as a coach, help to mould that person into a winner? Or is it something that they've just got to have in them? I think it's an inherent trait. It, it's behavioural. Um, I think you can help them be aware of competitiveness and being a winner. But, um, you know, to me, the, 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 the great players, it's just inbuilt into them. You can just see it like Lachlan Swinton is a winner. You know, he'll do anything he can to be the best that he can be. Um, and, and I can't force that into him. Um, that's just how he's built. But I think it's also not confusing... There's going to be guys in your teams that I just call soldiers. They're just the guys that they might be a second rower. Um, they might be a back rower that sits on the bench. They might be just a hardworking centre. 
that they're just guys that do their job and they don't have to say a lot of words and they don't have to be outspoken, but they're still winners. Um, and I look at a guy like, um, you know, Tommy Staniforth last year. Stanners was behind Ned and, and Simo. But whenever he got his opportunity, Stanners just did his job. He was unreal at set piece. He won his contact points. He trained his ass off. Wasn't a big talker, but he was just so competitive. Um, but he knew his place in the football team. So I think those style of players are really critical to a winning culture as well. Um, mentors. How, how important are mentors for, for coaches, for players, just in yeah, life think, in general? Yeah, I, I think they're really important if they're genuine. Um, I, I think sometimes the mentor, it's a bit like culture, that can get thrown around a little bit too easily. Um, and again, it's got to be organic. I, I look back at mine. Mine have probably changed over the years as you get a little bit older. Um, like when I came out of school um, in the senior footy at East, um, my first coach was a guy called Gary Jessman, um, and I was good mates with his brother. But Gary was a Scottish guy, and he just he just had such a passion for football, and he put so much belief in me and his football team. He just made me feel bulletproof, and it's something that I reflect back on now with my own coaching. Um, the, the difference that Gary made and me just as a Colts player um, was huge and I still speak to him to this day. Um, going into grade, a guy called Johnny Bremner who passed away. Um, Johnny was just ahead of his time. He was an educator, uh, teacher at one of the, the colleges in Brisbane. Really good teacher of men. Um, knew his football back to front. Very quiet. Um, but when he spoke, you listened to him. He was a guy that... Um, I played a couple of years under JB and again, probably someone from a tactical point of view, his understanding of the game was second to none and, and I took a lot off him. Um, and then probably getting a bit older, Tony McGowan, who I played with at East and then Dumper turned around and coached us the following year. Um, just a real hard taskmaster, um, work ethic second to none, knew exactly where he was headed. Obviously good success with Munster and, and coach with the Wallabies and Melbourne Rebels and all that type of stuff. So Dump is a guy, he's a good mate of mine, but he's a guy that I'll still send stuff through to or um, he's willing to share his stuff back with me and he'll be someone I'll always use. Um, and even this year he was sending texts through the season and just keeping in touch just in the background, which was um, really important. And then probably on a different light, Adrian Thompson from Rugby Australia, who again coached me at Ace. Um, it's funny, it's, it's probably all centres around Ace a little bit. Um, yeah. you know, I work with Tom at Rugby Australia and I learned a lot of Tom just around staff management and, and how to build staff groups around the football teams, which when you're coming through as a young coach, you're probably more on the technical, tactical aspect of it. But that human resource element of how to put your program together is um, something that, um, I'm very grateful for Tomo. Um, and again, a bit, bit like Dumper, I'll, I'll always speak with Tomo weekly and, you know, have a chat to him about certain things and ask him for feedback. Do you have an area of specialty, do you, in your opinion? Like if you if you said that you're a specialist coach in one area of the game, what, what would it be? Uh, well, I do defence. So I've probably worked hard on that the last eight years. Um, before that... Um, you know, it's like in club footy when you're young, you're doing everything. So you're doing attack and you're doing defence and you're doing your contact and you've got your forwards coach. So I was probably more predominantly an attack coach um, for the first 10 years that I coached. Um, yeah, and, and then I swung around and done defence the last 10 years. So I, I found myself really lucky that I've been able to actually coach both elements of the game because it gives you a pretty good understanding of both sides of the ball. Well, the, yeah, that, that's what, what I was going to ask because I... Um purely for selfish reasons. And I know a lot of coaches are in a similar position to me. I played my entire career in the front row. All of a sudden, I'm the head coach of a second grade team and I've got to understand what halfbacks do, wingers do, the kicking game, something I'd never thought of before. How, how, how do you go about learning those other areas of the game that you're not so well versed in? Yeah, I'd say, one, be patient because it's not all going to happen at once. And you might feel like that being a head coach that players will look to you to be the master of all knowledge um, and just use the resources around you. Like, you know, if it's backs play, we've also got Lado at Southos, who's probably one of the best backs coaches in the country. Um, and there'll be guys that you would have played with as um, backs that you can probably lean on and ask questions and that type of stuff. But I'd just say, just pick one or two elements, you know, every month that you really want to nail down well so you get really good clarity in it rather than look at it as a whole 
and then all of a sudden you're becoming a jack of all trades, master of none. So I think if you're clear in your yeah. head on how you want to learn the different aspects, um, just just put a timeline to it, but just make sure that you nail a couple of things at a time and not too many. Um, and that's what I get back down to before coaching club football. Like how great is it? Like you being a front rower, you've got the opportunity now in club footy that you know you've got the time and you've got the resources behind you, but you've actually got to learn the different parts of the game. And, and that's why I see club football is so beneficial. I was going to ask you about that. So uh, what it's done for me, I, I wasn't getting bored with rugby, but the jumping into coaching and having to learn, you know, where halfback standard defence, the different positions in the back line, it's, it's kind of opened the game up to me again and made it really, really interesting. But as, as a coach, what's the difference between professional coaching and that club sort of semi-professional level? Um, yeah, I'll go the other way. I think what doesn't change is what wins games of football. Um, I don't think it matters what level it is that go forward, support, continuity, those those elements of the game that you're brought up on, they're, they're so important at every level. So I think one is not to confuse that. Um, but two, the, the expectation um, is to me what the difference is. Um, club football, you're coaching guys that are probably working full time. You're probably working a job yourself as a coach. Um, rugby's that thing that you do on the side still passionate about whereas at the professional level it's people's careers um, you know and as we've seen this year with pens um, if results don't go your way then that then that's your job so I think the pressure and expectation of what comes along with professional football um, is certainly the thing for me that is a lot different to club football and it's probably realistic because there's still pressure at club football like there's still you know at the Southern District's lunch with the presentation you know the club wants to move into from being competitive to winning, you know, which is great because it sets standards with wherever you're going. Um, but I just think that the public and the media and how open you are to everyone around the country with what you're doing as your job, that, that to me is probably the difference. I think I asked you at the lunch, I'd, I'd had a couple of beers at that point, but how do you deal with criticism? Because you, you've got a job where you're very much in the public spotlight. Um, you know, the TARS are very much a developing team. How do you deal with, with that side of it? Yeah, it probably gets back to your mentors. Um, that, that's where, you know, speaking with Tomo and Dumper through the season, you know, it's just words of encouragement from them that, um, you know, keep you going and know that you're on the right track, which I think is important. But um, there's a good quote through the year that um, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't take advice off someone um, that you wouldn't listen to their criticism. And I thought that was really good because obviously we're copying and hiding um, from all different elements. Um, and at the end of the day, when you look at the people that are actually offering those opinions, they don't even have knowledge on the game, half of them anyway. Like, like I'd far prefer, like the other day at Southern Districts, meeting good rugby men who know football, have a chat about the Waratahs over a beer. Like to me, I'll get more out of that and respect those people because they're genuine rugby men that you're talking to. Whereas, you know, the people on social media and um you know, what, what comes through the media at times, you know, they're just so far off the mark on what they're putting is fact, but you, you can't rebut it because then it looks like you're making excuses. So yeah. uh, to, to me, that that's probably the most difficult. Well, I, I think it's kind of interesting with the media because uh, this is just how I see it, but they almost look at what negative thing we can write, whereas the rugby public, like the shoot shield, just want the Waratahs to go well. So mm. it's a... If it's criticism, it's a criticism out of caring, if, if that makes sense. And yeah. I feel like that would be a little easier to deal with than the, let's find some negative to say and just go after people. Yeah, and you're not naive either. Like, it also hasn't been a good season this year, so you're not saying that, you know, you're going to get pats on the back or anything like that. But if it's, if it's, if it's criticism or feedback coming from genuine rugby people, I can live with that every day of the week because mm. they've earned the right to have an opinion. And like you said, they genuinely care that that's why they're making comments and, you know, giving you a phone call or having a chat to you over a beer in the pub or whatever. Um, but, but it's probably from the people that, um, you know, it, to me it's all about that clickbait and the headlines these days and what's going to grab it because everyone's a journalist now um, with their mobile phones and that type of stuff. And that, that to me is the stuff that I, I just push aside. Like, um, you know, that's that to me is just nothing. Something I've been 
uh, digging into in my own life is is the concept of failure and learning from failure. And I think a lot of people, failure is still looked upon as a negative connotation and a negative word, but I, I, I feel, at least with me, that it's been uh, good for my learning. Like I've made a couple of really bad mistakes as a coach already, and I tell you what, they, they eat away at you far more as a coach than they did as a player. But have you had any mistakes or failures that have set you up for later success that you can think of? Yeah, I, I think I'll look back at my time at the Reeds, um, which I absolutely enjoyed. Um, but if I look back now, uh, you know, we had Stolze, who was head coach, was his first year as head coach, and Shane Arnold and myself um, were the assistants, and it was our first time doing Super Rugby. So it was basically three new people into their positions looking after a Super Rugby team, and and it was all great. We got on really well, and, um, you know, we ripped in. Um but again, the year was up and down. We had some really good performances and then some poor performances. But the Reds had come through a pretty turbulent period the previous, you know, five, six years where they turned over a lot of head coaches. So the club was in a rush to get success pretty quickly. Um, and Shane and I, you know, we'll have a beer now and talk about it. Like we literally were just surviving week to week at that stage. And um, I look back to how we coached and I, I don't think we coached anywhere near to our ability that we should have because because we were young, we are so worried about everything that we just spoke about, the results and the media and the board presence and all of that type of stuff. And and it was hectic. Um, and, and in the middle of the year, mate, it was, it was probably one of the toughest years that I've had, to be honest. But I look back now and, and I wouldn't change it because what, what it builds is a tougher skin. Um, you drop that naivety with your coaching at that level, it gives you resilience. I think that's a word that's thrown around a fair bit at the moment. Um, but to have resilience, you've got to have failure. Because if, if you don't have failure, how can you build resilience? You know, to me, it's 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 a two-way street. So I look I look back at that year and um, mate, that that's put some concrete, you know, in all of the stuff that went through that time. Uh, I read an article where Steve Hansen was quoted a couple of weeks ago talking about, I can't remember exactly what he said, but he he, he said something along the lines of, I, I don't understand why people or why coaches would not want to get close to players because um, it'll help you teach them better, help you get more out of them. He said, if it's going to affect your decision-making around the team, then the coach isn't putting the team first. What's your view on that sort of stuff in terms of, you know, like a player-coach relationship. Yeah, I'm the same, mate. Like, I'd like to think that one of my strengths is um, I can build those one-on-ones with the boys. Um, I hope I do show care to them on and off the field and, and I only want what's best for them. Um, I think as long as you're honest with them. You know, if, if you get too close to them and, um, you know, and you're telling them bullshit, they'll smell it from a mile away. So I think as long as you're honest with them, I think it makes those tougher conversations just that little bit easier. It's, they're still going to be hard, but if you've been honest with them the whole way, you know, they might blow up, but, you know, hopefully when they wake up the next morning and you do too, that, you know, it's a little bit easy because you have been honest with them, but they know that you only want what's best for them and the football team. So. Do you do any personal development? Yeah, I do. Um, it's, it's tougher through the season because it's obviously um, pretty hectic. Um, you know, probably informal, formal, um, a lot of different ways. Like I love reading. Um, I love reading books on coaches and players. I, I crunch out autobiographies like they're going um, everywhere. So I, I really enjoy reading and researching um, and then just building up connections with different clubs and that type of stuff where you can go and spend time at different clubs. I've been lucky enough to do the Storm a couple of times. Um, I went out to the Panthers with Wits just before Christmas and we caught up with Cameron Seraldo out there and, and just spent the day with, with those guys. And, you know, you might only pick up one or two things or consolidate something that you're thinking um, and you've had a massive win already. But I think if you can keep those connections going, um, you know, that, that's where the beauty of that professional development comes from. And then you can, you know, you always do your coaching courses and your short courses on leadership and communication, um, you know, because you're always trying to get better. Can you throw any books at me that you'd recommend? Um, mate, I read a really good one, uh, probably from a coaching point of view, Paul Ruse, who's the old um, Swans coach, and then went to He's the Yeah, yeah, I, I found his book. 
um, really intriguing from a coaching perspective because he went through how he applied for positions and um, how he found the different clubs and how he created all of his coaching philosophy um, and that type of thing, which was good. And I've just finished one by Tim Grover. Um, he talks about resilience and he's, he's a guy that um, is originally a strength and conditioning coach, but now he's more a mindset coach, but he's worked with you know Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant and those guys. And he just talks about how to motivate those guys who are at the elite level, which are the ones that really do need challenging. But as a coach, they're probably the hardest ones to actually challenge. What was it like spending some time with the Storm? Was Did you get to talk to Craig Bellamy or watch any of the stuff that he was doing? Yeah, just as a club, mate. They were, they were so impressive. Um, Dan McKellar and I went down there for our first trip um, and as soon as we landed, like Frank Panisi took us straight out to uh, straight out to lunch, bought us lunch, explained the week, what we wanted to get out of it, opened the whole club up, um, access to training, team meetings. Um, it was actually the week before the salary cap scandal broke, so it was it was a bit right. of yeah yeah. Um, so we went along to the game and they take you to the dressing sheds and and then they invited us into the um, private function at the end of the game, um, which was just for players and families. So mate, just as a club, they were so impressive, um, just how they welcomed you in because it can be a little bit awkward sometimes when you go to visit clubs. You're going to feel like you're getting away and that type of thing. Yeah. Um, and the, went to the Rabbit A's as well. Anthony Seabold, who I met through a mutual friend in the second trip at the Storm was through Seabes. Um, so I've kept in contact with Seabes a fair bit the last four years. Um, and they were the same. Like we rocked up. They've presented us with South Sydney Rabbit A's kit. Um, they've done a presentation on myself and Thorny. And Thorny had a few more highlights than me. Um, but they just made you feel so welcoming. You could just see the standards in the club on how they acted as a family. But there was just no bullshit about them. They just got into their work and they knew where they were headed. Um, so they they were excellent trips, mate. Look, I, I loved them. I got so much out of them. It, um, I spent a couple of weeks at the Rebels in 2018 as a player and um, they were training at the same facility that the Storm were training at. So I, I would hang around after training and watch the Storm train and you know, the intensity, the physicality, the speed that they train at. It was just you know, a whole nother, another level. Yeah. Yeah. The, the standards there, mate, are unreal, aren't they? They're just so good. It's it's no surprise that they have been the most successful league team. Like, even just watching them a couple of times, you're going, mate, this is this is full on. Like, I, I have no idea how other league teams train, but, you know, you can just kind of tell that something's good. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. What's a week in your life like? Just just the practical realities of being a professional coach. Maybe not at the moment. Let's go during a busy time. Yeah. Um, I'll probably go from game day forward because that, that's the easiest part. Um, so game day, uh, generally more of a day off because you actually got the morning just to chill. So I normally just try to get out and have a coffee and just catch up with some mates and that type of stuff. And you, you might have a bit of a look at the opposition game coming up, but you've already done that work through the week. Um, and then Wits and I normally like to get to work uh, mid-afternoon so we can just put the shoot shield on and, and watch one of the games in the afternoon and, and just get ready for the game. Um, game night, generally I'll, I used to code the game straight after, um, but I found I wasn't absorbing it. So what I generally do is once you get home, which is about 11, 11.30, um, you can't sleep anyway because you're on a bit of a high. Um, I'll generally watch the game in full without coding it, without taking notes. I just want to watch it and just get a, a feel of what it looks like coming back. And then Sunday's normally, mate, that, that's normally a full day. So you'll be cutting up the game from the night before because um, on Monday, it's all your reviews. So you're getting your individuals coded. You're putting your defence review together. You're doing your forwards review. You're doing your backs review. And then you've got to make sure that all your training's planned and ready to go as well. So Sunday is a pretty pretty big day um, to get going. Mondays. So just with the review stuff, sorry to cut you off, mate. With the, with the review, as a head coach, do you do all the unit areas as well? Or do you um, – so you, you've got a line-out coach, a scrum coach. Will you let them do their work, but you'll also have a look at it? 
Yeah, so uh, Matty Cobain would do all the forwards. And we've also got Craig Whelan, who's our analyst, who's a Wallabies analyst as well. So Craig does a big code for us. Yeah. Um, so we'll it's a combination where we'll pull out some of Craig's clips that he does as well, and then we'll code some of ours to actually blend in. And now some, sometimes we'll actually double up, which is cool because it means that we're looking at the same thing. So when we come in to debrief it on Monday, um, we're probably already over what we need to talk about, which is good. Um, so for me, with the forwards, I'd be more looking around if it's line-out play, what's our shape like in the seams with the line-out. Matty does the line-out more than the actual line-out defensive stuff. So we, you know, he takes the lead on that, then I'd build around his line-out play. Yeah. It might be pick-and-drive defence. It might be defending forward shapes coming around the corner that I'll have a look at with the forwards. And then Matty yeah. will have a look at the attack breakdown. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Sorry. Um, and then on the Monday, um, mate, that's just uh, recovery um, and then a bit of a spark up in the afternoon. So it's a lot of meetings in the morning, um, individuals, team unit. Um, we'll have a look at the week of training, um, sit down with our performance staff to make sure that, you know, all of our loadings and what we're doing um, are bang on and we're ready to go for the week with footy. Um, and then in the afternoon, we'll just have a bit of a a light run through of some key plays that we want to run for that week on the Saturday. But because they're played on the previous Saturday, that Monday is generally pretty light. Um, and then we'll get training in the afternoon. So you'll cut up some of the training from that day. We've got a huddle account that we put some clips on to huddle for the boys to check that night going into tomorrow. And then Monday night, you're just getting ready for training again. So just making sure that all your sessions are ready to go because Tuesday's a really big day. And generally Tuesdays will be a double day. It'll be units in the morning, team in the afternoon, but you'll have meetings prior to each of those sessions. Yeah. Um, again, pick up the video that afternoon and spend that night just going through training again, just picking up anything that we need to tidy up or give the boys a pat on the back for something good. Wednesday's generally our weekend, so that's our down day, so that's non-training. So we'll generally come into the office to look at the following week's opposition game. So we try to be a week ahead of what we're doing yeah. um, and then try to take Wednesday afternoon off. That, that's the only time in a six-day cycle that you would generally get off. Yeah. Um, Thursday's our speed day. Uh, Thursday's our speed execution day, so it'll be units and a team together with a team meeting. Um, but that's like high speed. We've already done our contact work and that on the Tuesday, but that's real clean execution um, and really nailing the game plan for the weekend with what we're doing. And then Thursday afternoons generally we'll sit down as a coaching group to have a really good look at the opposition. And that's where Craig will present um, key statistics and key plays, attack and defence. And then we'll take that away and then start to build that game plan for the following week. Um, Friday is really good. It's you know mid morning. We'll have um, a barbie together and um, have a captain's run, which Jake will lead. Uh, the boys will do a bit of skill um, just to tick off at the back end of training, and then the boys are done by lunchtime on a Friday. Um, and again, you probably then we'll sit down with the athletic performance team. We'll meet for about an hour and a half on the Friday, and we just review injury status, our loadings, um, how we're going in the gym, um, any welfare issues. And then we'll preview the upcoming week. So that way we're all squared away when we walk away on a Friday. Um, and then we hit game day on Saturday, mate, and then we just repeat it. Okay. That's very, very full on. <laughs> How do you switch off from that? Um, just making sure that when you do have your downtime that you actually do get away from it because, you know, that, that's a footy part of it. But through that week, you've still got your media duties, meetings with the media, our, our media coordinator, um, chatting with the CEO, um, chatting with our player welfare manager, um, commercial team. Like there's still a you know recruitment. There's still a lot that still fills in that week outside of that. So it's a pretty hectic week. But um, my two things. Um, I love love the beach and love having a coffee. So I generally get down to Maroubra and um, just chill out or go for a swim and um, just take some time off and just completely switch off from footy. Um, and I love my rugby league. So I make sure that. I've got my sports bet ready to go on a Friday night. Um, got a pizza ready and uh, I just get away from footy. So I make sure that I've got, you know, really good downtime when I do have it. Is that something you've had to work on? The, the, the reason I ask is uh, I've just started coaching this year. Another guy who's a young halfback just started coaching Colts this year. 
And we both looked at each other after a couple of times and we're like, man, this is stressful. Even yeah. like even at a lower level. Is that, is that something that you had to work on to, to be able to switch it on? Yeah, 100%, mate. I reckon that comes with it, with your experience with your teams too. Like, you know, going back a few years, if you're in a lean trot, you know, you'd, you'd work harder to get your way out of it, but you just start spinning your wheels even more. So that whole working smarter, you still got to work hard, but that whole working smarter, not harder, is something that really resonates um, with me now. And, and don't get me wrong, like, there's not a lot of downtime, but... Um, you know, for me, if, if, if I turn up to training and, and I'm coaching to the boys and I'm tired and stressed and I've got no energy with what I'm doing, then guess what? That's what the session will be. So it's really important for my mental state and physical state that when I step out in the field that, you know, I, whether I'm bouncing it up, but I'm, I'm ready to go and I'm super energetic and I'm really clear on what I want to get out of the session and that I'm driving it really strongly for the boys and I'm enjoying it with them too. Like, I think that's when you get your one-on-one -on -one relationships. The boys want to see you having fun as well. And, and they put all that aside. Like, there's no better job in the world than, you know, being out in the grass with the boys and um, coaching footy, so... I've, I've got two more questions for you and um, thank you so much for your time. I, I really appreciate it. Do you have any regrets from your coaching career or, or do you even believe in regrets? Um, regrets. Yeah, you'd, you'd certainly have, you know, based on performance and that type of stuff, you, you'd have a few regrets. Like we're, we're really disappointed with this year off the back of, we thought we made some really good strides last year um, in AU. Um, and obviously with COVID and that, we lost a fair bit of experience out of the squad, which, you know, put a bit of a handbrake on us this year. So I, I definitely think for me this year, we're, how we're building last year to this year, um, to me is really disappointing personally. Um, yeah, I, I'd say disappointments in coaching previously, I wouldn't see them as a regret. I'd see them more learning and shaping me as a footy coach. So when I talk about the Reds, I, I'd never see the Reds as a regret of that year that we went through because it's just given me so much as a man and a person. Um, so I, I definitely, in the time, I'd probably say, yeah, it was a regret. But, you know, with a bit of time between it, you actually go, you know, shit, I, I really needed that year in my coaching to experience something like that to, to give me a good basis. So no, no regrets, more just learning experiences. And yeah. Like that. That's yeah. a good one. And, and I think maturing with it too, Dunk, like when you're in the moment of it, you know, you, you sometimes you can go, geez, how are we going to get out of this? Or this is super tough. And, you know, when the good times are good, they're unbelievable. You want to keep them going. Um, but I think when you get a bit of time to reflect back on it, and I think that self-reflection process is really important as a coach, when you can actually break it down and go, right, well, that was tough because of this, but I've got this out of it and I'm going to put that in my kit bag to move forward to make me an even better coach. Because um, I, I think it's an occupation that every year you, you're going to get better at. And, you know, you're never the finished product as a coach, that, that's for sure. So that, that's something that really excites me as a coach. Um, sorry, mate, I lied to you. I just thought of an extra question. Game day. So something that I've realised on game day, and it's, it's uh, not confronting, but it, it's, you know, not shocking. I, I don't know the right way to say it, but in reality, you have very little control on game day on how the team performs and and anything really, apart from your messaging, setting the tone for the day, your, your substitutions, your selections, that sort of stuff. How do you deal with that? Yeah, it, it, it's tough when, it, when it's going good, it's unreal. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if, if it's a tight game or mate, you've played poorly or, or whatever, like you do feel helpless with it. Um, you know, and, and then you've got to look back on, you know, did you prepare the boys as well as you could? How's the game day warm-up? What was captain's run like? Um, but but the thing that I've learned the back end of the week was, and you've probably had it, mate, as a player yourself, like you can have a cracking captain's run and then go out and play a really poor first half. Same with warm-up. Same yeah, with warm-up. Be the yeah. best warm-up and be the worst game ever. Yeah, yeah. so I've really relaxed around. Like I still want my... I still think your captain's run should be sharp, but if there's a little bit of drop ball, a little bit of nerves, or you might have a debutante or, or whatever the case is, is it's more just getting around them and supporting them by that stage. They don't need a rev by the end of the week because it will just affect their confidence. And I reckon I've relaxed around the warm-up a lot more too because I was very 
very strict on what the warm-up looked like, good energy right from the get-go. But for some of the boys, they don't want to be amped up right from the get-go. They, they actually want to build through their warm-ups or their crescendoing to when they're running out. But then there's other guys that really want to be strong right from the get-go on the warm-up. So it's, it's just understanding their needs and, and letting them take control about how they want to prepare as well. Um, yeah. So that, that's probably been the biggest thing. But, yeah, I, mate, I even notice the difference between sitting in the box to running messages. Like when you're running messages, you can still generate good enthusiasm from the sideline and at injury breaks, you can go out there and be with the boys straight away. But being up in the box, you're so far away from them. Um, I, I even noticed a difference with that, mate. So yeah, it's, I feel it's, like sending messages from the box. The only thing you're really doing is annoying the physios and the water runners. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I always say to the messages, you, you've got to be a filter because, um, mate, I've been a water runner to some coaches and it's like they're commentating the game. And, mate, if you told yeah. the player everything that they said, they'd tell you to bugger off. So you've got to make sure you've got a good filter. But, um, yeah, no, it's all fun and games. Mate, uh, we've got these two great ladies who are our team managers in second grade. And my first game, I totally forgot that they were there. And I was dropping F-words and C-bombs and this guy's a <laughs> They said to me after the game, oh, Duncan, you, you swear a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, mate, last question for you. What advice would you give any young coach just starting out the coaching journey? Uh, keep it simple. You're not um, solving world hunger or anything like that. I think young coaches can make the mistake of, um, and we all go through it, but probably make the mistake of trying too hard and playbooks that are, you know, this big and trying to worry about too much stuff. Just, just pick two or three areas and really nail them down well. Um, that that's in your coaching plan. I think be yourself. Don't you know? It's great to go and view Craig Bellamy and Sebes and Seraldo and those guys or guys at your club, but they're successful because they're those guys. Like take bits off them, but just make sure that you yourself and that you coach how you want to coach. Yeah. Um, and keep trying things. Like training doesn't always have to be perfect. Um, you know, just because you've got a lot of markers and whistles and you've got the greatest training drills in the world, I think sometimes coaches can blow up when they're younger because the drill's not working and they'll change it straight away. Well, it might take the players three sessions to understand the drill, but by the fourth session, it'll be the best drill that you've probably used. But a lot of coaches have probably thrown it out already because it didn't work the first time. So we're no different to players. Research well, evidence well, but be really creative and confident to try things. And if it doesn't work, that's learning. Change it, mould it, get rid of it, get a new drill persist with it whatever the case is that you believe in but don't don't be afraid of mistakes with your own coaching just keep cracking on and that's a great way to end um i got a lot out of that and I, I think others will as well thank you mate enjoy the rest of your time in brizzy and um when are you when are you coming back uh i'll aim to get back i'm just seeing um if this lockdown will get extended in sydney so i'll aim to get back down mid middle of next week because the boys are still training at the moment so i'll have to get back and help with that no, no worries, mate. Well, uh, enjoy the rest of your time there. Thanks again, Gilly, and um, mate, talk soon. Pleasure, mate. Thank you, mate. Have a good one. You too. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this, and that's today's episode, guys. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode or any of our episodes, please make sure to subscribe um, on your preferred podcasting platform. Currently, we're on YouTube, uh, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And please make sure you follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Wandering Bear Sports. Until next week, wishing you and yours all the best and we'll see you next week.